Hello and welcome to Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. I am your host, as always, Gabriel Russo. Each week here on the show, we profile a star of the uh, of the uh, silent era in about 15 or 20 minutes. And so, we're going to jump right in here with William Desmond Taylor. Taylor was born in Carlow, Eng- Ireland. <laughs> almost said England. He was, his parents, or his father was a British army major. In his teens, he failed tests to enter the army. Because of this, his father sent him to a reform school in uh, the Middle West of America. He later turned up in New York as an actor. Now, he was not going by William Desmond Taylor at this time. He was going by William Cunningham Dean Tanner. He, well, they lived in upscale Larchmont. They were well-liked and popular with people around and neighbors and stuff. Uh, his daughter was born in 1903. In 1908, he went to lunch and never returned. The next day, he, te- he telephoned the shop that he owned to ask for $600, which he received by messenger, and he was never seen again. Rumors abounded that he was seen mining or acting in Colorado, Montana, and Alaska, going by the name William Desmond Taylor. Ethel divorced him, residence unknown, in 1912. That same year, he showed up in Inceville, the city of motion picture sets Thomas Ince built along the oceanfront near Santa Monica. Thomas Ince we profiled in a, an earlier episode, well, maybe at this point a later episode, I can't remember, because I've gone back and re-recorded this one. Episode 4, it had a lot of issues, let's say. Musical in nature and irritating everyone. And so, I'm re-recording this. Anyway, he shows up in 1912 at Inceville that Thomas Ince built. It's his, his, uh, his studio. He was hired to act in a film called 19, in a film called Counterfeiters in 1914. That was his first picture. Next... He showed up at KB Studios in the Iconoclast. Whenever there was a break in filming, Taylor would spend his time studying and watching the various phases of the movie business. Small talk with the other actors was not something that he was interested in. When the the Iconoclast was finished filming, Taylor was offered another acting job and then offered a chance to direct. Back then, it it was cheaper to hire an actor that could also direct than to hire two men to do jobs. (laughs) <laughs> uh, William S. Well, same as today. William S. Hart did the same thing for Triangle Pictures. And we'll do a, uh, an episode on Mr. Hart at some point. Taylor continued acting, directing, or both, until he was hired as an actor in A Tale of Two Cities in 1917. He became invaluable to the director with his knowledge of art and literature. After that, he rapidly climbed the ladder of success and became the leading director for Famous Players Lasky Studios. He directed many famous people, Constance Talmadge, Dustin Farnham, Kathleen Williams. I'm saying famous people, <laughs> I don't recognize any of their names, um, and other stars with great success. And he was asked to direct the first screen versions of Tom Sawyer in 1917 and Huckleberry Finn in 1920. Suddenly he was rich and famous. Women were very interested in him as he was a handsome and charming director and he was in a position to help them. Uh, on the casting couch, I would assume. Like many directors who turned out a large number of films, you know, some were good, some were bad. He directed Mary Pickford in uh, How Could Eugene in 1918. That same year, when World War I raged in Europe, 41-year-old Taylor enlisted in the Canadian Army. But the war would end before Taylor could be sent to France. So instead, he served in the Army until he was just discharged in the summer of 1919. 
and he returned to direct uh, Anne of Green Gables in 1919. One of his last projects would be to direct Betty Compson in The Green Temptation, 1922. So that's kind of crazy that he just split on his family like that, and then he goes and becomes famous, which is, you know, I, I don't know. Well, he was born in 1872. I always start there. I forgot. He died February 1st, 1922. He directed 59 silent films and acted in 27. His acting ended in about 1915. And then from then on, he was strictly a director. His murder on February 1st, 1922 was the first major murder in, uh, you know, film scandal murder uh, in early Hollywood. In the early morning hours of February 2nd, 1922, he was found shot to death in his bungalow. His still unsolved murder was one of Hollywood's first major scandals, as I said. From what the police could piece together, at 7 p.m., Taylor returned a telephone call to actor Antonio Marino at the LAL Athletic Club. At 7.05, close friend and actress Mabel Normand, we did a show on her, arrived at his door. She left his house at 7.45, so 40 minutes later, with Taylor walking her to her car, according to witnesses. According to one theory, Taylor was shot in the left side with a single bullet shortly after her departure by an unknown assailant. Others put the murder sometimes, sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., uh, based on the fact that he was not rigor mortis uh, when his servant arrived the following morning and discovered the body. So they don't think that it, ha you know, he hadn't had long enough, he hadn't been dead long enough to, to go stiff. Studio officials were called first, and they were the first to arrive on the scene, and they are alleged to have removed key evidence long before the police and coroner arrived to begin investigation and secure the mur murder scene. There's a whole bunch of suspects included at the time, A-list in Hollywood, reports of finding some of Mary Miles Minter's personal belongings including a monogrammed negligee in his bungalow, and her being suspected of the murder effectually ended her career in pictures. Uh, we did a... Did we do a story on her? Anyway, Milner's mother, uh, Charlotte Shelby, was another suspect in the murder. Mabel Normand's career would be tarnished by her association and questionable motivation in the death of Mr. Taylor. Other theories involved drug dealers who were angered by his attempts to get Norman free of drugs. And that was a thing, because Mabel Normand was hooked on cocaine, and he loved her very much. Now, Normand was a p very popular actress at the time. She is described as leaving in a happy mood. The limousine drew drove her away. She is the last person to have seen him alive, so of course she was a suspect. She was subjected to grueling interrogation by the LAPD, but they ruled her out as a subject, I mean, as a suspect, <laughs> Her career had already slowed down, and with it being tarnished by, you know, just linked, it was already, her addiction was coming to the front, and uh, he, Mr. Taylor, uh, was really trying to get her clean, and apparently had, had, had talked to her dealer, <laughs> uh, and said that, uh, you know, he was going to uh, go to the police and make, a, you know, make trouble for this guy, apparently. Now, the neighbors, this, uh, his neighbors, Faith Cole McLean and her husband, actor Douglas McLean, apparently Faith actually saw the killer. They were startled by a loud noise at 8 p.m., so it's about 15 minutes after Mabel Normand leaves. McLean goes to her front door, and she sees someone emerging from the front door of Taylor's house, who she said was dressed, quote, like my idea of a motion picture burglar. She recalls that this person paused for a moment before turning and walking back through the door 
and then re-emerging, looked right at her and smiled at her, and then disappeared. She decided that she had heard a car backfire because, you know, she told um, she told police interview- interviewers that this person looked funny, quote, like movie actors in makeup, and may have been a woman disguised as a man. Interesting. Now, Charles Eaton was general manager of Paramount Pictures. He entered Taylor's bungalow with a group of Paramount employees and removed everything that uh, may have, <laughs> you know, may have uh, been evidence or been bad or looked bad. Now, Mary Miles Minter, who we talked to before or talked about just a minute ago, there were love letters found. Her negligee was found. She was uh, 19 and he was 49. Uh, But apparently their relationship began when she was 17. Although it's been been disputed by people also at the time who believed um, that her love for Taylor was unrequited. And he had described himself as too old for her. So maybe she just sent him, you know, who knows. But it didn't matter because they, they, uh, they found some love letters and the newspapers printed them and that was it. She was a modest, wholesome girl. Uh, as opposed to, you know, or as supposed to be in the press. And once these love letters were printed, that was it for her career. Her mother was a typical stage mother, manipulative, wanton greed. Her statements to the police are still characterized as evasive and obviously filled with lies about both her daughter's relationship with Taylor and other matters. So she's lying to the police just trying to make it sound like he's, you know, he's a bad guy, who knows. Now, in 1964, there was a confession. I had I, I said that this was a still unsolved case. That is true, because this is not official. But in 1964, Margaret Gibson, an actress, confessed. She was a former prostitute and opium dealing opium dealer. One of the one of her films that she made was the last film made by Mary Miles Minter, so they knew each other. Now in 1964, apparently she had a heart attack. And uh, and confessed to a witness that she shot that she quote shot and killed William Desmond Taylor. That witness later repeated his recollection in a televised documentary. There was a book called Taylorology. Bruce Long transcribed several hundred newspaper magazine articles from the 1910s and 20s relating to Taylor. I'm sorry, I said a ma- I said a book, but uh, yeah, a journal called Taylorology. It's got a thousand pages of text and has been noted as a significant archive of primary and secondary source material relating both to the murder and early L.A. film colony. There was a lack of evidence, poor crime scene management, obviously, and apparent corruption, no, the LAPD. Much physical evidence was immediately lost, and the rest has vanished over the years. Although a few documents from the police files were made public in 2007, but it, it's not enough to, to... There was no... There was never any hard evidence uncovered to link the crime to a particular individual. Given Margaret Gibson's thoroughly documented background, the report of her dying confession attracted the attention of film historians. But aside from circumstantial evidence, no confirmation has emerged. Now, this is one of the earliest scandals in uh, in Hollywood, you know, coinciding with Fatty Arbuckle trial and uh, the death of Olive's, Olive Thomas a couple years earlier. Uh, the death of Thomas Ince and Wallace Reed, Barbara Lamar, they were all right in there. We've done stories on most of them. Jean Eagles, we haven't done one on her because I've just found out about it this second, but I'm gonna. All of these scandals combined prompted Hollywood studios to begin writing contracts with morality clauses or moral turpitude clauses. 
allowing the dis- the dismissal of contractees who breached them. Like I said, he directed 59 films, starred in 27. The film Sunset Boulevard, starring William Holden and Gloria Swanson in 1950, features a fictional aging silent screen actress named Norma Desmond, whose name was taken from Taylor's middle name and Mabel Norman's last name, uh, as a way to resonate with the scandal from almost 30 years ago. That's kind of interesting. The film Hollywood Story in 1951 is is based directly on the Taylor murder, and the film reaches a fictional conclusion. It follows the circumstances of the real-life event fairly closely. Gore Vidal's novel Hollywood in 1990 also features a fictionalized account of the Taylor murder. Taylor's murder was depicted in David Merrick's production of the Jerry Herman Michael Stewart cult musical Mac and Mabel, which ran eh, ran a little bit in 1974, starring Robert Preston as Mac Sennett and Bernadette Peters as Mabel Normand, with James Mitchell playing William Desmond Taylor. In 2012, to mark the 140th anniversary of his birth, the William Desmond Taylor Society in his hometown of Carlow, England, established Taylor Fest, an annual arts and film festival honoring Ireland's most prolific filmmaker. Well, that's a shame that Ireland's most prolific filmmaker died in 1922. And Tin Pot and Cleverality Productions produced, with funding from the Broadcast Authority of Ireland, a one-hour drama documentary examining the murder and presented it in the style of a 1920s live radio show. It was called Who Killed Bill in 2013. The show combined dramatizations with interviews from experts, including Oscar-winning film historian Kevin Brownlow. Like I said, he directed, well, it says more than 60 films, but my other, see, that's funny. My other research said that he directed 59 films and starred in 27. Regardless, he directed a bunch of films, starred in a bunch of films, the first major murder in Hollywood. Taylor's funeral was one of the most impressive held in Los Angeles up to that date. Virtually everyone in prominence in the motion picture industry was in attendance. And I think that that is going to wrap up the sad story. Is it sad? William Desmond Taylor? I mean, he was a jerk. He left his, he left his family without a word. And then when he got famous, I mean, there was never any, I haven't stumbled on any, uh, and I don't do much research, but I haven't came, I haven't come across anything that said he, you know, ever saw his daughter again. So, I mean, that's not a reason for somebody to get murdered, but, yeah, you know, do we, is this guy, is he a nice guy? That's not for me to say, I guess. Anyway, that's going to do it for William Desmond Taylor. I thank you for listening to the show, Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. Thank you for downloading. You can check me out on Twitter at GRusso1971. You can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. You can go to facebook.com slash GabeRussoArt. And that will be some art that I do. Once again, I thank you very much for downloading and listening. The only reason that I redid this one just to get it out there was because I recorded some music all through while I was talking in the original one and I've had a couple of complaints about it and I fixed one of another episode that I did the same thing but I never got around to this one and I just listened to it and frankly it was unlistenable and uh, I apologize and so now it is better I hope (laughs) anyway thank you for listening once again please come back next time thank you very much (laughs) 